Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. I have too many pages in my notes, so I'm fearful if I do not get started now, we will not finish in a timely way. Um, This morning, we're going to be covering week two on our 13-week study, Beautiful Feet. Uh, We're going to be talking about barriers this morning. Last week, we had an opportunity to just take a look at our overall thesis, overall theme for this class, which is obviously, as it is named, Beautiful Feet, coming from Romans chapter 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We looked at almost how paradoxical, almost doesn't seem to make sense to call feet beautiful, but how in the gospel, God makes all things beautiful. Once again, he is in the work of redemption and he's in the work of redeeming our view of being a part of the evangelization of the world. And that though we may view it at times as something unattractive, unbeautiful, or even the world most definitely views the gospel as something unattractive and unbeautiful, God makes that which is unlovable, lovely by loving it. And he'll do the same for us in our view of sharing the gospel with others by helping us have beautiful feet. Before we get started this week on overcoming barriers, just join me in prayer, if you would, asking God to bless this time. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the distinct privilege to gather this morning. God, there's so much that could have got in our way from gathering together as we are challenged by your word in Hebrews. God, we know it is the habit of some to miss that. And Lord, we thank you. God, we thank you for the grace to to make the time this morning, God, to make this a priority. God, to be able to be with your people, to experience your presence in so many more ways, God. Uh, When two or three are gathered together, there too I am with them. And Lord, to, to know that, to experience that, to feel your presence. God, to to love you and to grow in our love for you. Lord, we pray for that love this morning, that love that overcomes all things, a multitude of sins. God, that we would fall more desperately in love with you again this morning. God, the Christian walk is not often learning new things. It's being reminded of that which I already forgot. Lord, it was a simple thing that you had against the church of Ephesus. This I have against you. You lost the love you had at first. Repent and do the works you did at first. Lord, we pray that you would keep us from becoming familiar with your cross. Lord, we pray that we would never feel like the gospel is normal, that we would always see it for the beauty that it is and that it would inspire and motivate and change us, God, and to stir us out of our stupor and our slumber and to go, to overcome every potential possible barrier that could ever get in the way of us wanting to help dying men and women know you. We all sit here today because someone opened their mouths. Lord, we pray that, God, you would help us do the same by your grace and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. In John chapter four is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I'm sure many of you are very, very familiar with it. It's the story of the woman at the well. Of course, 
The lady going to the well in the middle of the day had a connotation with it. If anyone who was understanding of the times, right, it was very, very hot over there in the middle of the day. And so the most strategic or desirable time to go to the well would not have been in the heat of the day, but it would have been to go earlier in the morning or in the evenings when the sun was setting. And of course, they could have the water for the whole day and they wouldn't have been beat down by the heat. But this lady, no, she was there in the heat of the day. Why? Because she was an outcast. She was outside of the social elite. She wasn't accepted. She was likely despised and rejected by the people in her own community. Later, we found out why. It was likely because of her own promiscuity, multiple husbands or other men that she had lived with. Christ eventually puts his finger on in her life. And it would have seemed inappropriate even for Christ to be talking to this woman. Matter of fact, his apostles... They didn't want him to go this way, right? On their way, they wanted to go around this town. But you know, Christ had a divine appointment with this lady. As he's had a divine appointment with each and every single one of us, if you know the Lord. As he encounters this woman, they dialogue. He, of course, asks her for some water. And then he never wastes an opportunity. Oh, here's, here's a great little transition to take things spiritual. If you knew who I was, you would ask me for water. And, of course... What are you talking about? I'm giving you the water. Very confused. Doesn't know where he's going with this yet. Many of you have probably been in those kind of awkward spiritual transition conversations. How can I... You know, the thing about buildings, you know, a church is a building. Have you ever been to a church? Uh, There's so many awkward ways to try to take a conversation spiritual. Christ not missing an opportunity. Not awkward at all. Perfectly sways this to a spiritual conversation and dialogue with her now. She quickly deflects, right? He continues on getting deeper and deeper, puts his finger on her sin and pointing out that the man that she lives with, well, go call your husband. Well, that's right. This man isn't your husband. Matter of fact, all the other men that you've been living with recently aren't your husband and you've had many of them. And so she dismisses him again. Oh, well, I see you're a prophet. But when the real prophet comes, the Messiah comes later, he'll, he'll explain all these things. And then he drops the bomb. I who speak to you am he. Oh, I love that moment. And so later... Seemingly, this woman obviously has come to know the Lord, and she does the most simple thing. She goes and tells everyone. I love it. She just goes and tells everyone. She doesn't know a thing, hardly. (laughs) She knows enough to have trusted in Christ, it looks like, from the best that we can tell. But literally, all she says is, come see the man who told me all I ever did. That's it. And she invites her entire town, and crazy enough, they, they did it. They, they went and they saw him and Christ stayed there for two more days. It says many Samaritans from that town believed in him and Christ because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. That's all the testimony they give us. That's all they, that's all they tell us that she said. He told me all I ever did. How simple. Clear, but so simple. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Christ, they asked him to stay. He did. He stayed with them two more days, surely teaching them, doing life with them. And many more believed because of his word. And I love this. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. They heard the word of God. The word become flesh. Many will come to have a simple testimony to come and hear. But then they hear the word of God. And that is when they are saved. That's our first example for the morning. But then there was a second example that we had in Scripture. Think of the rich young ruler. 
the rich young ruler, right? He runs up to Christ and he says, good teacher, what must I do to what? Be saved or inherit eternal life, right? So he's asking, he's actually asking good questions. The woman at the well wasn't even asking good questions. She wanted to be left alone. She just wanted to get her water and get out of there. But he's actually seeking for an answer, but maybe for different motivations as it becomes to be known later. Christ immediately puts his finger on a problem for this young man. I love this. He questions his use of the phrase good. Why do you call me good? For there is only one that is good, right? He's getting at this young man's standard of truth. The young man presses him. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? And he says, fine. If you would be perfect, obey all the commandments. Obey all the commandments. I love his arrogance. So sweet. I've done this. I did. I've done all that. What next? I obeyed all the commandments. What next? <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, but then again, I asked my son to clean his room, and he's like, I did it. And I go up there, and it's just a filthy, stinking mess, right? And he's like, yeah, I've done it. I've done it. Can you imagine just Jesus' empathy in this moment? Like, oh, sweet boy. Okay. Well, allow me to put my finger on that. Fine. If you would be perfect, go sell all you have, and then come and follow me. And so Christ puts his finger, just like he did at the lady on the well, puts his finger on her sin. Go call your husband. I know what's going on really in your life. Puts his finger on this young man's sin. If you would be perfect, go sell all you have and come follow me. And of course, what was it that was the difference between the young man and the young woman? He didn't. One went away cheerful, joyful, redeemed. The other walked away very sad. Why? There was a barrier for this young man. Something that kept him in the way, kept him from the good gift that Christ had for him. And it was seemingly to him, though it should have been nothing at all, it was so valuable. And so it kept him from Christ. Why? Because he was rich. And so for him, this was a major barrier keeping him from Christ because he seemingly had a lot to lose. He had a lot to lose in his mind. He couldn't get past selling all he had. He loved his possessions, I suppose. We don't know how it ended for him. I think, as far as we know in Scripture, that's the last of this young man we hear of. So we have two very contrasting stories of encounters with Christ. One that walks away very different than the other. And the difference was a barrier. For this morning, for us, we are looking at those barriers. Hopefully most, if not all of us here this morning, have come to know Christ, but we have been invited now that we are in Christ to be a part of this message of reconciliation, to have beautiful feet. But if we're honest, there are many stinky, unattractive things that get in our way, like the rich young ruler, that are barriers for us sharing the gospel. And there are many barriers for many that have kept them from the gospel in the first place. So we want to take a look at some of those this morning, see how we can address those in the gospel and overcome these barriers so that we too may have beautiful feet. There's a quote, I don't think I put it up there. No, I did not. I don't know who the author was. I tried to look it up, and honestly, there was some uh, conflict over who might have said this, but I've heard it before. The only thing necessary for triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. I'm sure many of you have heard that before. Good women do nothing. Well, we don't want to be uh, an, 
along with the many who may have barriers that keep us from doing the greatest good that could be done, the sharing of the gospel. One of the great equalizers in this world um, was made clear to me when I was uh, watching a biography for somebody not too terribly long ago. We'll get into that in just a moment. And that is the equalizer of time. The equalizer of time. We all only have 24 hours in a day. It doesn't matter whether you're a billionaire or live in the poverty bracket, you have 24 hours in a day. All of us only have so much time. So that would be barrier number one. I've often thought in my life, if I just had more time, I would be more intentional with the lost. If I just had more time, I would do more Bible studies with my lost friends or whatever it may be, fill fill in the blank. All of us seem to be inundated with just not enough time in our days. God's sovereign, so he must have had a reason for that. I wonder why that might be. But we're all so limited by time. A documentary I was talking about was the documentary on Bill Gates. I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix. Don't hold me to that. But I was just curious to learn more about this man who's accomplished so much in his life. I mean, obviously, he's brilliant and incredibly affluent. But I wanted to learn more about the life and mind of this man, Bill Gates. And of all the resources and of all the accomplishments that he's had in his life, he identified, so this documentary went on to say, but he identified a great limitation in his life, and that was the limitation of time. Think about it. A man who could literally snap his fingers, be on a jet, and be on the other side of the world in just a couple of hours because the resource of money and jet fuel is nothing to him, yet he has the same amount of minutes in a day that you do and that I do. No matter how affluent he ever gets, he'll never overcome the limitation of time. And he hated that. Still does, I think. And so he got busy planning every minute of every day so that he could squeeze every potential amount of production out of every day that he could. He allots exactly the amount of time that he's going to sleep. He knows exactly how long his commute from his office, from his home is. Matter of fact, he hired someone to drive him so that he could work or read a book while he uses that time, right? He knows how he's going to use every minute of every day. Now, there could be a morbidly introspective level of this. Um, Obviously, idolatry can drive us to do things too far, no doubt about it, but we do have a command in Scripture to make the most of our time, do we not? In Ephesians chapter 5, it says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If Bill Gates, who does not know the Lord, is making the most of every opportunity in his life, and that was probably to grow this Microsoft empire and make lots of money, though he's seemingly giving it all away now, so there's at least that. He's realized that that can't be the end of his life. Now that he has it all, he's just giving it away. If he's making the most of all of his time, should we not, as believers who have so much more to live for, be making the most of our time? God challenges us, even demands that we make the most of our time to be careful how we live, not as unwise, but wise. I hinted at this a second ago, but there is a helpful caveat here, and we don't want to be pressed into a legality here. Um, God made us for freedom, for fun, 
to enjoy the world. There's plenty of instances in scripture where, um, I mean, look at Ecclesiastes, right? God, he made you to enjoy your family. He made you to enjoy your wife, your husband, your children. God gave us this earth for that, for joy, for enjoyment, even for fun. He created an entire day of the week for Sabbath, (laughs) to rest and to enjoy him. Sabbath rest is rest in Christ. But I think if, if you're anything like me, you fall too far maybe on one side than the other. Um, many in our society, we overwork, but we might overwork for the wrong things. And then we swing the pendulum to the other side, and now I'm going to Netflix chill for 12 straight hours and binge on that. And then we overrest in the wrong ways as well, not good Sabbath rest. So it's equally important for us to live not only for freedom, for fun, for rest, but to remember that we have been given a mission, a call in our life to live out. One of the helpful ways that somebody did this for me one time is they actually handed me a schedule. And it was just a Monday or Sunday through Saturday schedule and literally just write out, kind of like Bill Gates did, but not to a morbid legal way, and just write down, how did you spend your last week? Even do it for your last 48 hours. How did you spend your last 48 hours? And try to record every hour of every day what you spent it doing. And then highlight with different colors or circle and then square, you know, just to identify the brackets of priority in your life. Okay, was this period of time about my personal walk with God? Was this period of time about my family, being a good husband, being a good wife, a son or daughter? Was this period of my time working my job and providing as I am biblically called to? Maybe this period of time was spent serving in the church and I was in the nursery or I was at church on Sunday. And just look at the days of your week, look at the hours in your day, look at the minutes in your hours and ask yourself, what is your schedule telling you? You can reverse engineer the greatest priorities in your life because how we allocate one of the most scarce resources in our life, which is time, tells us a lot about our priorities, does it not? Now, for many of us, it may happen by default, but why not by design? Why not be intentional with how we use our time? Look at our schedules and see how much time we are giving to different priorities in our life and allow your schedule to tell you what you love most. What is Christ putting his finger on like he did for the rich young ruler? Go sell all you have, then come and follow me. Christ may call you to die to something in your life or to at least die to it being as high of a priority and as many hours in your life. Maybe I don't need as many hours working, many hours doing this or that. We need to be wise, not unwise in how we use our time. We have more time than we think, quite frankly. We have more time than we think. You have 24 hours. It's just a matter of how many of them am I using for the kingdom and how many of them might I be using for myself As you do this, you may be incredibly encouraged, or if you're like me, you might be a little discouraged. Um, But God is calling us to obey him and his word and how we use our time. We all have time for that which we love most. Flat and simple. What do you love most? What do you love most? Look at your schedule and allow it to challenge you. What is my schedule telling me? Where is the allocation of the most scarce resource I might have in my life telling me I love most? Is it rest? Is it work? Is my family? Many of these things are good things, by the way, right? Many of the things that may be getting the most of your time, the difficult part is, are biblical things. We could point to somewhere in Scripture and say, no, God 
called me, told me to do this. He told me I'm worse than an unbeliever if I don't provide for my family, Caleb. Yeah, but he didn't say spend 23 or 24 hours a day doing that, right? All of them can become idolatry at some point if we love them more than we love Christ. So there needs to be a healthy division there in, in our time. Maybe there can be an intentional effort to do a once-a-week coffee with a lost friend. Just once a week for an hour. Or perhaps I've seen guys um, do a sports activity. Some of us play softball here actually at Faith Bible Church. And we need to make sure we're always being intentional. But our, our aim and our desire is, as we intentionally have a few friends that do not know the Lord, that we've invited to be on the team. Why? Because we're using that as an opportunity to get to know them. Um, I've uh, even heard of guys who hate football. Believe it or not, there are guys who hate football. And they join a fantasy football league. Why? Because it gives them a relational connection to some other lost friends that they want to stay connected to. And they get, they get whooped week in and week out. But they don't care because it keeps them connected. And as their lost friends are talking trash and giving them a hard time, they're connected. They're connected. Gives them a relational connection to somebody. I've heard stories of stay-at-home moms arranging to go to the park with their kids at the same time as other stay-at-home moms that they're trying to be gal pals with. Why? Because as their kids are being crazy and jumping off the jump and jump and whatnot, they can sit on the bench and watch them be crazy together and talk and build a friendship. What an incredible, intentional, thoughtful way, right, to make the most of your time. We all make time for what we love most. What is a wise, strategic, dare I say that word, even intentional way you can lovingly make time for the lost world around you? If we look for it, I bet we would see it. Time does not have to be a barrier to being a part of having beautiful feet. Another one that I've heard often is fear. Fear. I hope that's not too small and you guys can read it. Apologies. It's Matthew 10, 26 to 33. If you can't read that, you want to turn in your word to it. Fear. The... Fear of man isn't something new to the church. Matter of fact, uh, the early church feared man. The context here in Matthew 10 is fear of their own lives, actual physical persecution of losing their life. Christ saying, have no fear of them, the world, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim in the housetops, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Mm. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body, excuse me, can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jumping to 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Hmm. Like I said, the context of this is more persecution of the world for confessing Christ, fear of actually losing your life, which thankfully is not our context whatsoever. I don't know if any of us will ever, though perhaps at some point we'll fear that we would have so much physical mistreatment for confessing Christ that we may lose our life. But there is the fear of opinion. I think that's the one I struggle with most, if you're anything like that. What will they think of me? What will they say when I'm not around? Will they kind of laugh or scoff behind my back? I don't want to be the mortgage broker who's known who's trying to save all his realtor friends or something like that. That fear, that thought has crossed my head. If I say something, will they stop doing business with me? Could this literally take money and food off my kid's table? I, f I feared that. I have. And to go and pray that 
It's like, oh, God gave me this job. If he takes money away there, he'll just give it somewhere else. He's not going to make my kids go hungry for being faithful to him, right? But I've, I've had that thought. I've had that doubt. I've had that fear. Absolutely. I'm sure you have shared that in many times in many different ways. If we're having a, a fear of what someone's going to think of us, at the end of the day, I think it's just got to be some kind of personal insecurity, right? We're just personally insecure in some way. Right? I'm finding some kind of sense of worth or well-being in what somebody else thinks of me, right? And therefore, if they think less of me, I fear that. A great litmus test as to whether or not you've ever struggled with this is if you've had kids at a grocery store. Holy smokes. Take my kids to Costco and just watch the world judge me, right? Um, Mary Beth Geyer actually told Denise one of the greatest training grounds for young parents is to take their kids grocery shopping. Woo! I mean, they just act a fool. They just go crazy. I've thought about this a few times. What is it that allows my son to just have literally no social awareness whatsoever? None whatsoever. I'd like to think, it's probably not just this, but I'd like to think, because I want to think well of myself, it's because he knows I love him so stinking much, he can just do whatever he wants. Uh, that's not all of it, of course. But there is a degree of that, right? In the safety of the presence of their parents, kids are just free. They can run, they can play, they can act crazy. Why? Mom and dad loves me no matter what. Mom and dad's going to keep me safe. And so I feel safe, I feel secure, and so I can just be myself, even if that self needs a lot of rounding of edges, growth and development and maturity. There's some freedom, some personal security that comes in being safe in the arms of your father, right? Wait a second, uh oh, I see an illustration coming here. Shouldn't that be the same way for us? Feeling so personally secure in Christ's opinion of us and our identity in Christ, whatever anybody else thinks of us really shouldn't matter. I'm free. And isn't that how all of us actually come to know Christ? There's not a single person that can ever come to know Christ that hasn't yet experienced the freedom of completely losing any identity in yourself, any worth in yourself, because you see that you are completely unworthy and that you have to find your sufficiency completely in Christ and his completed work of the cross, and now you are free to come and to be right with God. It's that same personal security and freedom that makes you free to go and to not care what anybody thinks. Social unawareness? No, we're not socially unaware, but we are free. We are free in the gospel. Paul put it this way. I always loved this verse. It was helpful for me in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. In the life I live now, in the flesh I live my faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is in the gospel that we can lose ourselves all over again and not fear man, but rather fear the Lord and know that the judgment that awaits for our dear friends that we know and love and know don't know the Lord. We can get over the fear of them because we fear the Lord so much more on their behalf. And we want to obey the Lord. We want our friends to come to know Christ and to be saved. Perhaps your problem isn't the fear of what others think of you, but maybe it's the fear of what you think of you. That could be the problem as well. Too low a thought of self. 
Maybe you feel unequipped, unskilled, untrained, unworthy even perhaps. I couldn't possibly be less trained than the lady at the well. I mean, just run back to John 4. She had no training. There was no time for development. There was no sitting down. Okay, this is how you share your testimony. Now, when you go back to the Samaritans to make sure to say this, no, she just went. Come, and she's, come see, come see. It is so simple, folks. And we're actually going to have a week, which means we won't have the excuse anymore. Sorry. We're going to work on our personal testimonies. And we're going to be trained in a couple of just simple, clear, concise ways you can share the gospel. Because there's nothing wrong with being trained. The only thing that would be wrong was allowing that to hold us back, to be a barrier. But there's no way that we could be less equipped than the lady at the well. And God used her for many to come and see and to come to know the Lord. There's another passage that's so helpful in this. If you struggle with feeling insufficient or incompetent, God gave us this in 2 Corinthians. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything coming from us. No, our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient, made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Sufficiency in sharing the gospel is not being well-spoken. Sufficiency in sharing the gospel is not being an extrovert. It's not being great with people. It's knowing and loving Christ. That's it. He will make you sufficient. And if you're, I've heard this one before. It's just not my personality. I'm not an extrovert. Or it's not my gifting. Evangelism, Caleb, it's in the Bible. That's a gift. That's a gift. That's a spiritual gift. Hang on. Oh, man. God put other stuff in the Bible that takes away that excuse. Stink. Exodus. Think of Moses. Wait a second. Here's a guy who was terrible at speaking. He actually tried that excuse with God and it didn't work. Oh, shucks. Moses, being called by God, freeing his people, leading them out of bondage and slavery and into freedom. God's presence with God's people one day. Moses says, no, I can't do that. God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who, who am I that I should go? Seemingly a great response. Honestly, the posture's good. We should all feel unworthy because we are, right? To be heralds of the king, of the Messiah? Absolutely. But it can't stop us. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? great posture, but I love God's response. He doesn't say, I'll make you better at public speaking. I'll take away your stutter or your stammer if that's what he had. No, God promises his presence. His first response is, I will be with you. He doesn't say, I'll make you speak better. He doesn't say, I'll give you confidence. He doesn't say, I'm, I'm going to make you eloquent. No, I will be with you. When my son is scared to go up to his room because the lights are off and he wants to get one of his toys, he wants to go to the backyard to get something, the number one thing he asks for, he doesn't ask, Daddy, make me feel better. He doesn't even say, Daddy, turn on the light. He says, Daddy, come with me. I love that. Think about that. That is what God promises to his people when they go to share the gospel. His greatest promise, he'll be with you. What greater thing could he give you? If he made you better at speaking but didn't go with you, how good is that? No. No, he gives you something so much better. Himself. Himself. 
There's nothing that could make us get over our own feelings of insufficiency or unworth than the very presence of God. And that is what he has given us, folks. Another barrier, let's recount here so far. What have we had? Time, fear, a feeling of being unequipped, number three. Fourth would be a lack of vision or burden. A lack of vision or burden. This one might be the saddest of all for me as I've thought about it, maybe even feel the feels writing this. I'm reminded of Matthew 9, 35 to 38. I remember all the apostles were here in this moment with all these crowds. Mostly it seemed they just wanted to be fed. They were hungry. <laughs> They're like, hey, he can, he can put out a feast pretty quick, this Jesus guy we heard, so let's follow him around because we're all hungry. And when Jesus looked at the crowds, went through the cities, went through the villages, went through the synagogues, he was proclaiming the gospel, healing every disease and affliction. And when he saw the crowds, verse 36, he had compassion on them. Why? Why was he moved to the point of literally being physically sick to his stomach? That's what the Greek connotation behind this, he had compassion on them, was. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He saw that they were lost. He saw the eternity that was before them and was moved to compassion. And so what was Christ's response? I love this. His response wasn't to go and to share individually with every single one of them. No, it was to turn to his men that he was about to help have beautiful feet. And he told them to pray. He told them to pray. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So he's laying a vision in front of them. He's helping them have the burden. And he says, therefore, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest field. Maybe they thought it would be some other men somebody better equipped. It's definitely somebody who wasn't fishermen before. But then, of course, after he told them to pray in Matthew 9 and Matthew 28, he made it pretty clear. Hey, by the way, those men that you were praying for to go into the harvest, it's you. Go. Go. There's an incredibly convicting quote from this magician. I apologize once again if it's too small. Penn Jillette, he's got the silent guy that uh, does all the tricks with him. He's a known atheist, come to find out. I don't know if he still is. I hope not, but he might be. Penn said this, I've always said that I don't respect people who do not proselytize, share the gospel. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and a people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it could make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize or who say you should just leave me alone, let me along to keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? He goes on, I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt, which he doesn't, that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that the truck was bearing down at you, there's a certain point, I just tackle you. This is more important than that. Brothers, sisters, we have a clear warning in our word. We've all known it and repented and ran from it ourselves and trusted in Christ. Our friends who do not know the Lord have an eternal separation from Christ ahead of them. 
A truck is bearing down on them. Who cares what they think? What was the phrase? There's a missionary who said, some men feel comfortable living within the realms of chapel bells. I would rather run a rescue shop three yards from the gates of hell. If our friends are going to go to an eternity without knowing Christ, let them do it over your dead body. Hold them at the ankles <laughs> to the end. My father spent his entire adult life um, sharing with my grandpa. He always struggled with feeling like he just wasn't worthy. Oh, Christ couldn't save me. I'm too, I'm too sinful. And he would just dismiss my dad, dismiss my dad, dismiss my dad. Um, and finally, I, you know, we, we don't know, only the Lord knows, but just one morning, finally, my dad would always take him to breakfast when he was in town. And one morning, finally, it just, he was ready. He was ready to hear, to, to respond, and to repent to the gospel. And my, my dad had the privilege to see his own father come to know the Lord. Within a year, he, he had died. But he was different at the very end. Um, he, never, he never gave up. Um, we can never give up on our friends. Um, and my dad's dad only respected him. He never agreed with you know, my, my dad's faith or his trust in Christ, but he respected it. And I, I think often we, we struggle with thinking people are going to think less of us for sure. We're dead. No, I'm back. They're not. And if they do, so what? But often they, they'll probably actually respect you all the more. They won't share that faith, but they'll, they'll respect it. And if they don't, that's okay too. Our security isn't in that. We've been crucified with Christ, right? Last uh, barrier I want to talk about, and then just one easy response, I think, one answer for all the barriers, even though we've given a few small answers along the way, is that of theology. Uh, I don't want it to be lost on us that we are a church who loves God's Word, has an incredibly high view of God's Word. Theology, for many in the reform circles, has become a barrier at times for sharing the gospel. Well, if God is sovereign, and he's already foreknown and elected before all times, Ephesians chapter 1, those whom he is going to set his love on before the foundations of the world... Why does it really matter if I share the gospel? God's going to do his thing anyways. And the honest answer is, is he is. You're right. He just won't do it with you. I mean, Christ could make the rock shout if he wanted to. He could have written it in the clouds in the heavens, the gospel, if he wanted to. But the simple fact is, and we looked at it last week, why has God done it the way he's done it and uses despicable, honestly, bad vessels like us because he gets more glory. He washes us and cleans us and uses us. He gets more glory. And I don't want to steal all the uh, thunder. We're actually going to spend an entire week on this in a couple of weeks because I think it deserves that amount of time. And J.I. Packer wrote a pretty good book on this, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Uh, Bo Falk is going to bring that to us in a few weeks. So suffice it to say, our evangelism should only be further deepened by our theology, not depleted. Not depleted but we will get into that far deeper in a few weeks. I don't want to steal Bo's thunder. There's a man, many of you probably heard of him, named Dawson Trotman. Dawson Trotman. He's a spiritual hero of mine in many ways. He's not perfect. No normal man is other than Christ who wasn't normal. But Dawson Trotman, as many of you may know, started the Navigators many, many years ago. 
And he lived a life ferocious for Christ all the way to the end. Didn't start that way by any means. Uh, matter of fact, he even died saving the life of another. There was a boating accident of some sort. Uh, I think there was a gal who was drowning in the water and he dove in and, and kept her above the water just long enough for them to grab her as he then lost control and sank to his own death, actually. He died saving the life of another. Lived this. Greater love have none than this, right? That someone laid down his life for his friends. Now, of course, Christ is talking about himself as substitutionary sacrifice for us. But Dawson laid his life down for this gal at the end. And he had three things <clears throat> that can be causes of a fruitlessness in our life, or three things that can keep us from bearing fruit spiritually in this way, seeing others come to know Christ. And I thought they were helpful. So not just barriers, but sometimes there's causes that can keep us from others coming to know Christ through our life, from God using us in this way. The first one he mentions is infidelity. Infidelity, number one, infidelity. If you're not married to Christ, you can have no union with him. First and foremost, you have to be married to Christ. Ephesians 5, illustration of marriage that is given to us through life is really a picture of what we're meant to have with Christ, is it not? You cannot multiply your life without that kind of intimacy. And that would be the case for any unbeliever. If we do not know the Lord, God cannot use us in this way. The Spirit of Christ would not be alive in us, cannot share that with another. Though God can use anybody, quite frankly, I feel like he can do whatever he wants. Often he's using his people. He's using his people. Secondly would be infancy. 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 Am I saying that right? Why does it sound so weird when I'm saying it right? Yeah. Uh, like being an infant, like a baby. Infancy. One of the, I'm having a tough word. You ever say a word and you say it over and over and over again, it just doesn't sound right? Well, I had too much coffee. I think that's happening to me. Infancy. I'll just say it fast and that confident. God in his infinite wisdom, though, made it so that babies can't have babies. Did he not? Right? Man, think of a nightmare that would be. Right? They're just not ready for the responsibility, right? They're not mature enough. They're not developed enough. They're not ready for that. Shoot, I don't feel ready for that. Almost 35. But a young believer, depending on the circumstances, very well may need a season of time to grow in their life with God before God thinks they're ready for something like that. But don't let this mislead you. Sometimes the mo one of the most strategic times in our life, though this shouldn't be an excuse if you've known the Lord for a long time either, just let's be careful, but sometimes one of the most strategic times in a young person's life that knows the Lord is right after they come to know the Lord. Think of the Samaritan. Think of the lady at the well. She runs back to town, and all of a sudden, she's totally different. And everybody's like, whoa, what happened to you? I remember when I first came to Christ, right, God started convicting me of the sin of my life. Things start changing. All my friends hated me. I was a party pooper now. I didn't want to do any of the things we were doing anymore. Not out of a legalistic way. I didn't find joy in them anymore. I didn't find satisfaction in them anymore. God had pulled back the veil and helped me see the death in the things that I was doing. I wasn't fun anymore to my friends. And so they started asking questions. Many of you probably have had that in your life at times, either immediately or later down the road. And people will eventually ask questions. What is the reason for the hope in you? I mean, I'll word it that way. Yeah, what's wrong with you? Why are you boring now? Or whatever it might be. Why do you have so much joy when your life stinks? Or whatever it might be, right? Now, often God will use seasons like that of great pain and distress or loss or despair in our life seemingly. And the world looks at us and there's joy and they're like, what is wrong with you? You know you should be miserable, right? 
And that is an opportunity. And I think that is the case often in a young believer's life. Being a young believer, being untrained, being young in Christ is not an excuse for being, not being used by Christ. No, Christ wants to use us too. If you're a young believer, just say, come and see. Come and see the man who told me all I ever did. Bring along an older believer with you, and then they can help more clearly, concisely share the gospel with your lost friends. And many could perhaps come to know the Lord. Perhaps there's a divine appointment for them as well, like there was for the lady at the well. I remember when I first came to Christ thinking this. I was like, man, uh, the guy who was discipling me, I was like, I have no idea what just happened to me or how in the world it just happened. But let's go do it to my friends. <laughs> let's go do it. Let's go get them. I was like, I'll set up a pizza party or whatever. The, you pop out your Bible and let's see if they run. Um, so we did it. <sighs> Praise God, two of those men will be filling the pews this morning. God's faithful. I was silent the whole time, by the way. I did nothing. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. I was just the boring friend now. But God is faithful to his word, is he not? He's faithful to his word. Third would be infertility. Infertility. Running short on time. Infection can cause fruitlessness, can it not? Um, There's a tree at my house. I don't know if it's spiders or some kind of virus or something, but it be dying. And it is not bearing fruit anymore. Why? Because it has an infection of some sort. And we even see this in the world today. Infertility is far more common than you would realize until you get older and start having friends and things happen. My wife and I, we've had three miscarriages ourselves, but God has been so gracious to give us some healthy children. But we have wrestled with this reality that some of the consequences of sin and sickness in this world is infertility. And that is not only true physically, but can be the case spiritually as well. Ongoing sin patterns of unrepentance in our life can render us unfruitful. Not just in the spiritual fruits in our life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, but also in multiplying our lives and the life of others. God is all about his glory, wants to multiply through us to help others come to know him, but he wants to use good vessels for that. Now, he'll clean us, he'll regenerate us, he'll renew us, he'll sanctify us, but he's looking to use good vessels. If there are ongoing patterns of sin in our life, it can make us infertile, infertile. So just to recount, if you're wondering, what could be some of the things in my life, Caleb, that could be keeping me um, back here? Could it be time? Fear, perhaps feeling unequipped or unworthy. Perhaps there's a lack of vision or burden. It's hard to see what we aren't looking at. If we're not daily in God's word and being burdened by the reality of eternity in front of our lost friends, we won't often have a vision or burden for them. Perhaps it's theological. And we've been theologically excusing ourselves of thinking that sharing the gospel isn't something that really is necessary because God is sovereign and he'll do it no matter what. Or perhaps some of these three causes, infidelity, not being married to Christ, not yet having right relationship with him, infancy, being too young in our walk with God, needing some development, some training, some deeper intimacy with Christ, or perhaps infertility, ongoing pattern of sin, holding us back. Any of these could be barriers to keeping us from multiplying our lives and the others. Any of these can be barriers to keeping us from having beautiful feet. But each and every one of these barriers is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to more deeply show our love of Christ. 
I always love how we can know how valuable something is to somebody by how much they're willing to pay for it, right? I mean, people will pay asinine amounts of money for the most silly things, right? But why are they willing to do it? Because they want it. They love it. They really like it. I had somebody several months ago couldn't afford the down payment on their house because they had to have the PS5. And I laughed when they told me. And they're like, no, we're serious. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> really love playing games. Had to have it. Wasn't, wasn't an option, Caleb. Okay. How valuable something is, is often directly correlated to how much we're willing to pay to have it. The cost we're willing to pay. You probably see where I'm going with this. If the world were to measure your love of Christ by a similar standard, what would be the verdict? If the world were to look at how much you're willing to pay to follow Christ, how much you're willing to sacrifice, persecution, awkward conversations, people judging or thinking less of you so that they can know Christ, what would the world's verdict be to how much you love Christ? It's a challenging thought for me, if I'm being honest. Challenging thought. Luke 9, 23, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. John 13, 35, by all the people will know you are my disciples, what? By the love you have for one another. John 15, greater love have none than this, as someone lay down his life for his friends. And of course, God does not leave us without an example, Romans 5, 8. God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God showed us his love by how much he was willing to pay for us, his son. We personally have come to know how much God loves us by what he was willing to pay to get us. Do we not? The world will know the same. How could we ever have any doubt that God loves us than when we look at the cross and we look at the price that he was willing to pay? You know, the problem with sacrifice is just that it's so stinking sacrificial, right? That's the problem with sacrifice. I have to sacrifice. It's hard. I have to give something up that seemingly I love. Maybe I love the wrong thing. What is in the world that will motivate us to sacrifice? What is it that's going to help us overcome all of these obstacles and barriers? These verses are helpful, Caleb, but at the end of the day, the rubber has to meet the road somewhere. What is going to push me past my fear of man? What is going to push me past prioritizing my life the way I have been and giving so much time to Netflix or to whatever it might be? What is going to push me past not having a burden for the lost? What is going to push me past fill in the blank, whatever it might be? The only thing that I could think of that would override all of these is exactly what we just talked about, and it's love. It's love. Gospel love and love for the glory of God and to see his people redeemed is the one thing that would cast out all these things. It covers a multitude of sins. Perfect love casts out all fears. Gospel love overcomes all. When I was dating Denise, getting to know her, my wife. For those of you who don't know my wife, I was up in Lafayette serving on a campus up there. Um, and she was all the way down here in Evansville. So we had a big distance barrier. And that was before I-69 was done. So you had to go down Highway 231. It was awful. I mean, it just took forever to get here. And I had to find all sorts of excuses to come here before she knew I was like intentionally. So I had support trips and, oh, hey, I'm in town. Hey, we should hang out. Um, I overcame the barrier of distance though, right? I didn't have much time. I'm literally spending 
I was spending too much time. I was spending like 15 hours a week, you know, or a day on campus. And it's like, I didn't have much time. So I would literally like schedule a 30 minute bracket in between one-on-ones with guys where I would like go around the corner of a building and like have a phone call with her and talk to her for a second, right? Because I'm intentionally wanting to pursue her. Why? Because slowly but surely I was falling in love with this girl. There was no barrier that I wasn't willing to get creative and find a way to overcome. Whether it was distance, whether it was time, whether it was I was broke as a joke. So I literally called up my supporters and be like, I got to marry this girl. I need money for date night. And here came the money. And my supporters were so excited. Like, yes, it's time for you to grow up. Let's go. It didn't matter the barrier. Love overcame it all. It motivated me to overcome every possible barrier so that I could be with the one I love. You know where I'm going with this, folks. If we love Christ more than we love anything in this world, it doesn't matter whether it's time, money, other people's opinions, we will find a way. We will be wise, not unwise. We will make the most of every opportunity. Good theology alone cannot lead to spiritually multiplying our lives, folks. That only comes with intimacy. Intimacy. Good theology alone cannot multiply our lives any more than doing a a research study on my wife would lead to us having kids. No, it's intimacy that leads to having children. And it's intimacy with Christ that will lead to us multiplying our love of Christ into the lives of others and overcoming all of these barriers until they become nothing, nothing at all, right? These barriers won't be barriers anymore. We won't even feel them. We won't even think about them anymore. And... June of 1963, there was a monk who did the unthinkable. Just making sure there's no children here. It's a powerful photo. Many of you have probably seen it before. Wanted to make sure there's no children here. But this is unthinkable what this man did. On June 11th, 1963, the monk Fitch Quang lit himself on fire. He immolated himself because he was protesting against the persecution of the Buddhists by the South Vietnamese government. It was considered to be an act of defiance against a corrupt government. Now, what I want you to notice is all the people watching. People came to watch him burn. Now, it's, it's terrible. It's awful what happened here, right? But there's an observation to be had here, folks. If you light yourself on fire, people will come to watch you burn. If you are so on fire for the Lord and in your love of Christ and your walk with him and your genuine sharing the gospel with other people, they may not understand. Matter of fact, they'll probably think you're crazy, but you'll be in good company because they said Christ was full of a demon. They thought he was crazy, but people will come to watch you burn. If you are so in love with him that you invite your coworkers over to your house to build personal friendships with them, invite them into your family to get to know them, to try to help them come to know the Lord, they'll probably think you're weird, but they'll come to watch you burn. If you love others so much that you're willing to go out of your way to build personal friendships with people in areas of weakness where you're stinking terrible at sports, but there you are, or whatever the opportunity might be, they'll probably think you're weird and wonder why you're there, but they'll watch you burn. Whatever the thing may be, if you light yourself on fire for the Lord and live on vision and task for him, They will not understand you any more than the people of Samaria understood the woman at the well, but they'll come because she was on fire 
and they want to know what lit her on fire. And there may just be a divine appointment for one of those people in your life as well, just like there was for the lady at the well. And Christ will help you also have beautiful feet. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the distinct privilege and opportunity to be your ambassadors. But God, if we are honest, there's so many things that get in the way. God, I confess that there are so many loves that I have in this world, so many things that I love far too much than I should, namely myself. And we just pray that God, as we fall more deeply and deeply in love with you, that all of these things will wash away. And all that will remain is a love of you. The barriers will wash away. The obstacles will wash away. The lack of intimacy with you will grow and deepen. And God, all that will be left is genuine love of you, love of others, and sharing the gospel with the lost world around us. And God, we know, we know it is not our job to help people make sure they come to know you. It is just our job to be faithful, to scatter the seed. It is not how skilled the thrower of the seed, the seed is. No, it is you who makes it grow. You prepare the soil. You give the rain and nurture the gospel seed. And God, you make it take deep root. We are just called to be faithful. And we pray that we could be that, God, faithful, because we love you. We pray all these things in Christ's name.